John chapter 19, we're going to read from verses 31 down to verse 42. John chapter 19, verse 31 through 42. We've been covering the life of Christ in the book of John, and we're getting so close to chapter 20 and chapter 21, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. But we first come to the burial. John chapter 19, verse 31. If you don't have a Bible, you can look to the screens and uh, screen rather, and you can follow along with us in the Word of God. But John chapter 19, verse 31. The Bible says, Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen and has testified, uh, I'm sorry, and he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there, so there they laid Jesus because of, the, the, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. This is God's word. The title of the message this morning is, It's Not Over Yet. It's not over yet. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for the singing. The music, Lord, we thank you for the rain. We thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would help me as I preach your word today. Help the ears of those who hear it, apply it gladly to their hearts this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been to a funeral? I don't know if there's anybody that has not been to one. And like many of you, perhaps all of us, funerals are not the favorite thing that I would like to attend. Funerals bring with them a sense of finality. I remember a funeral that happened about a year ago over at another church in Jacksonville. There was a widow in our church that had just lost her only son. They live right next to each other. She's in her 80s. They live right next to each other. He was in his 60s. And they would give rides to each other back and forth from work and and errands that they needed to run every day. Until one day, she noticed that he didn't come to her door like he normally did. And so she walked over to his house right next door, and sadly, she discovered that he had passed away sometime during the night. As we prepared for his funeral, we made arrangements. The day of the funeral arrived, she came and she drove up to the church, she got out of her car and she took the long walk up the sidewalk to the church doors. 
She seemed fairly composed, but as she got closer to the door and as I walked to the door to hold it open for her, she began to weep. And as she walked through those doors, I took her hand and ushered her into the auditorium where we held a funeral service for her only child. Funerals are not a happy time. They bring with them a sense of finality, a sense of closure, perhaps, a fond farewell, a sharing of precious memories, an emotion that it is over. And so we come to the funeral arrangements of Jesus this morning. But one thing that's different about Jesus' funeral is this. It's not over yet. Why focus so much on the burial? Why do we focus so much on the funeral arrangements of our Lord and Savior? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again, accord, uh, again the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul makes a mention of both the death, the burial, and the resurrection. The reason perhaps is illustrated and shed more light upon by the Heidelberg Catechism, which was written in 1563, which states this. His burial testified that he had really died. You see, the reason that John and the other gospels record the burial of Jesus is to show us this. Jesus didn't just swoon on the cross. He wasn't just swapped out with another body. The, the fact that we have a testimony to two secret disciples burying Jesus shows us this one fact that Jesus actually died. The death of Jesus is made certain by three different parties in this passage of Scripture this morning. It's made certain by the Jews, it's made certain by the soldiers, and it's also made certain by these two secret disciples. The fact of the matter is this morning is that if you're looking at this passage of Scripture, you are doing one of three things. You are either commanding Jesus' death like the Jews did, you are acknowledging Jesus' death like the soldiers did, or you are embracing Jesus' death like Joseph and Nicodemus did. What is the one takeaway that we can take away from this passage of Scripture this morning? It is simply this. You must embrace the death of Jesus before you can rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus. And I want us this morning to look at three different determinations that we each must make, we each must make about the death of Jesus this morning. Three different determinations that show us it truly is not over yet. You see, we crucified Jesus last week. We will resurrect him next week. But today we look at his burial. Look with me at these three things, if you would. The first thing I see is this. Do not disregard the death of Jesus. Do not disregard the death of Jesus. If you would look at verse number 31 of our text, verse 31 says this, Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. We see the Jews here at it again. They are here to follow the law. They are content to follow the law so long as it suits them. 
Never mind the fact that they just crucified an innocent man. They illegally put him on trial in an illegal fashion with illegal witnesses. But they referred to the law, and the law that they're referring to is Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22. And I quote, If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, this body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. The Jews are simply going through the motions at this point. Sure, they pick and choose which parts of the law that they want to follow, but when it comes to Jesus, they will crucify him without mercy, without justice, without a trial. You see, they disregarded all of his teachings. They disregarded all of his miracles. They disregarded his innocence, and now they disregard his death. We could say it this way, take Jesus away because he is polluting our city. He is in the way of us following our law. And the ironic thing is that they had just crucified the lawgiver. They totally disregarded the death of Jesus. They wanted to have nothing to do with him at all. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you decide that you want to follow your own rules, your own morality. You know that the significance of Jesus and his death and his burial and his resurrection, you know that the church, the gospel, The word that I am proclaiming to you this morning stands in the way of you doing your own thing. And you disregard it. You are here simply to fulfill a duty. Is that you this morning? Do you disregard the death of Jesus? Do not disregard his death this morning. But secondly, I see this. Do not merely acknowledge the death of Jesus. Do not merely acknowledge the death of Jesus. The soldiers, they prophetically, they confirm his death. In verse number 34, we see this, and I read, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. This is an interesting scene, of course. The two thieves that are crucified on either side of Jesus had their legs broken, as was the custom, because if a uh, executed party was on the cross for too long and the Romans wanted to get on with their deaths, they would take a club and they would shatter the shin bones of whoever was crucified on the cross, so that way they could not lift themselves up with their leg muscles to get some air. And so they would die by asphyxiation very rapidly if their leg muscles were broken. Jesus is there in the middle. They, they break one of the thieves' legs. They break the other one's legs. But when they come to Jesus, they understand, as experts at killing people, they understand that immediately he's not alive anymore. They can just tell. And so one of the soldiers takes a spear and he runs it up his side under his ribcage. He probably would have come under his ribcage up through his lung tissue and into his heart to pierce it to make sure of his death. He pulls the spear out and out comes not only blood, but also the fluid water-like substance that surrounds the pericardium of the heart. Blood and water flows out and Jesus is indeed dead. You see, the soldiers merely confirmed Jesus' death. They looked at him. They understood who he was. He was a common criminal to them. He 
was hanging there with two other thieves, no doubt, who had committed trespasses and broken the law. And they understood Jesus probably did the same thing. But when they come to Jesus, they understand, no, there's something different about him. They pierced his side, blood and water came out. And John tells us that this is the fulfillment of two different prophecies. Look at them with me in verse number 36. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. Prophecy number one is this. In the Old Testament, when the Jews were sacrificing a lamb for Passover, there was a very specific regulation they were supposed to follow. Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, and Numbers chapter 9, verse 12, both specify one very important thing. The Passover lamb's bones were not to be broken. We see also in Psalm 34, 20, it says, quote, He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Referring to the Messiah that was to come, the psalmist writes a prophetic statement. Jesus' bones would not be broken. He was to be the perfect Passover lamb that was not to be broken. John tells us in verse number 35, and he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. John goes out of his way to tell you that as he is so often the case, the custom of the Apostle John in this book, he is not to identify himself by name. He's far too modest for that. But he says that he's the one that is penning this. He's the one that has seen it with his own eyes. He is telling you, he's pleading with you, I'm recording this instance so that you can believe. You have got to believe me, is what John is saying. I saw it with my own eyes. I followed Jesus for three years. I saw the soldiers pierce his rib cage. They did not break any of his bones. It fulfilled one prophecy, but it also fulfilled another prophecy. Zechariah 12.10 says this, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Another messianic prophecy from the book of Zechariah. Two prophecies fulfilled, even in the death of Jesus. What is John trying to say to us? He is trying to tell us that Jesus actually is the perfect Passover lamb. He is the savior of the world. He is your savior if you have accepted him as your personal savior this morning. He has fulfilled all of these prophecies, and even when he is dead, he fulfills yet two more. But you see, the difference between us, perhaps, and the soldiers is this. The soldiers merely confirmed that Jesus was dead. They didn't understand who he was. They just had a job to do. Make sure the three criminals are dead. They finish the job. They go on with their day. They did not connect the significance of Jesus with the needs of their heart. How many of you received an a flurry of emails from stores this week trying to get you to come in on Black Friday. Anybody? I think all of us received a whole bunch of emails trying to get us to come to somebody's store so that way we can go in, we can look at their goods and services, and we can purchase a product. I got those same ones. 
I got a Black Friday coupon from Home Depot in my inbox, and I know that there was some nice things in that inbox. There were some nice things in that Home Depot ad. I knew there was a great sale going on this, this uh, past Friday, but you know, in order to take advantage of those sales, what do I have to do? I have to actually go to Home Depot. I actually have to take the knowledge that I have and apply it. I have to put my feet to what I know. My friend, this morning, if you just have the knowledge of Jesus, if you just know that Jesus was a person that died and that he was buried and that we have an empty tomb in the Middle East somewhere today, if you just acknowledge that as a historical fact, but you fail to understand the significance of it and you move the knowledge from your head to your heart, you are no better than these soldiers who all they did was pierce his side and moved on to the next criminal. You must not merely acknowledge the death of Jesus. We must not disregard the death of Jesus. We must not merely acknowledge the death of Jesus this morning. But finally, I see we must lovingly embrace the death of Jesus. We find here two interesting men. This is the first time that John mentions Joseph of Arimathea. This is the third time that he mentions Nicodemus. What is it about these two men that makes it so interesting? Why does John record these two men in here? Let's examine these. Verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Who was Joseph? We know that John tells us he was a disciple, but that's about it. That's all John tells us. He was a secret disciple of Jesus. We go to the other two, three gospels. Matthew 27, 57 says that Joseph was a rich man. And both Mark and Luke tell us that he was a prominent council member. Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a member of the 70-member council that condemned Jesus to death. Mark tells us that he did not consent to Jesus' dying. We know that from John, he tells us that Joseph was a secret disciple of Jesus. And yet, Joseph cannot hold his peace any longer, can he? He has seen too much injustice done. He has seen all of these things done to the Lord Jesus Christ. He understands the miracles can only come from God. And he finally steps into the spotlight and decides in front of everybody else I'm going to give the king a burial he deserves. Matthew tells us that Joseph laid Jesus in his own tomb. This was a family burial site. This was Joseph's family's personal tomb. It's not as if the Sanhedrin didn't know whose tomb it was. Lest we think that Joseph was secretly burying him, it was the Sanhedrin that then commanded these soldiers to go to the tomb and guard it, lest somebody else steal the body and then the last uh, damage be forced than the first, is what they say, right? They, they, they know whose tomb it is. They know whose property this is. They know that among their ranks, there has been a secret disciple of Christ that has now come forward to bury the carpenter. You see, the Jewish custom was to bury executed criminals in a mass common grave. And yet here we find Joseph giving Jesus a royal burial. 
By burying Jesus this way, he is publicly declaring to everybody else, I'm with him. Nicodemus, we come to Nicodemus in verse 39. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Who is Nicodemus? This is the third time that we see Nicodemus in the, in, in the Gospel of John. We first see Nicodemus in chapter 3, where he comes to Jesus by night. He has a secret conversation with Jesus, asking him various questions about eternal life. We see him in John chapter 7, where the Sanhedrin is in their first few deliberations about how to put Jesus to death, and Nicodemus speaks up for Jesus. He says, Shall we, do we condemn a man without trying him justly first? And the Sanhedrin say, who are you? Are you also a disciple of his? Don't you know that a prophet doesn't come from Galilee? And they shut Nicodemus down. Nicodemus quietly stays in the background until this point. Nicodemus came also, but he didn't just come empty-handed. How many of you all know that funerals cost money? They're one of the most significant and sorrowful expenses that you will ever pay for. Nicodemus comes with herbs and spices, myrrh and aloes, and as is the custom of Jewish burial, they begin to anoint the body of Jesus, but he doesn't just do it with the typical 5 to 20 pounds of ointments and spices, as was the custom with Jewish burials. No, Nicodemus comes with 100 pounds. This would have been a hay bale. Nicodemus comes with a hay bale strapped to his back. 75 modern day pounds of ointment and myrrh and spices carrying with him this perhaps $150,000 embalming fluid. Remember Mary earlier in the book of John who broke a pound of spikenard, very precious, who, which would have cost about a year's wages? Nicodemus comes with 75 pounds of the stuff. And he's carrying it with him. And Joseph is tenderly carrying the body of Jesus to the tomb. They lay him in the cold stone and they begin to wrap the strips of linen around Jesus' body. And they spend an inordinate amount of money on a dead Messiah. Which demonstrates to us this truth. That even in death, Jesus is still worthy of our worship. He is still worthy of our adoration more than any status. He is worthy more than any position, more than any prestige, more than any possession, more than any comfort could afford to us. Even in death, Jesus still demands that we worship him. This is a great monetary cost, but I want you to see also that this was also a hurried burial. They exercised courage, they expended cost, but the burial of Jesus also required haste. These two gentlemen, they've now come into the limelight. They're two significant, prominent teachers from the Sanhedrin. They're declaring to the world now that this dead man is the proper Messiah, and they had to make a decision quickly. Verse number 42. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day. 
for the tomb was nearby. You see, the Sabbath was fast approaching at this point, and Joseph and Nicodemus only had until sundown to dispose of a dead body. The Old Testament law required that whatever uh, dead bodies you touch, you had to bury them the same day. Can I also note this, that once they actually touched the dead body, Joseph and Nicodemus would be, undefi- would be ceremonially defiled, according to the Old Testament law, for seven full days. It would take them seven full days before they could enter into the temple again. This was the most important week of the Jewish calendar. This is Passover week. And they choose to defile themselves with the body of Jesus so that Jesus receives a proper burial. They had to bury him quickly. They had to make the decision. What kinds of decisions did they have to make? They had to make the decision quickly. Are we going to come out and say that we are followers of Jesus? Once Jesus is dead, they had to decide quickly. If we do this, everybody's going to know I'm a disciple of Jesus. If we do this, it's going to cost a lot of money. For what good? So that Jesus has a proper burial. If we do this, there's no turning back. There is no earthly benefit that could come back to us if we request the body of a criminal accused of blasphemy. There is no coming back from this. My friend, when will the time come when you choose to stand with Jesus? Will you choose to proudly and publicly proclaim him and worship him because he deserves it? Will you choose to spend and be spent for Christ even when there seems like there is no earthly reward? They had great personal sacrifice here. Joseph and Nicodemus took on a great personal risk They made a great personal sacrifice and they exhibited great personal urgency. They made the decision quickly. You see, when the time came, when Jesus is dead, the disciples all fled away when Jesus was still alive. But when Jesus is dead, Nicodemus and Joseph come and they lay Jesus to rest. Why do they go through all this trouble? Surely as teachers of the law, they knew They knew Psalm 16.10, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. They understood that Jesus would rise again. And as John is anxious to get to chapter 20, through tear-stained ink, and parchment, he writes down John chapter 29, the betrayal, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, using only one word to describe the immense suffering of Jesus. He comes to this passage, writing down and narrating for us the burial of Jesus so that we know that Jesus actually died. But can you see the light in his eyes as he turns the page and decides, I'm going to write about the resurrection now. But we come first, and we meditate first, and we linger first on the burial of our Savior. Medical students have a class where there's a cadaver in the middle of the room, and this room is surrounded oftentimes by benches and seats where students can look on at the professor dissecting the cadaver in the middle. These are called anatomical theaters. 
The world's oldest surviving anatomical theater is in uh, the University of Padua in Italy, I believe. It was built in 1594. It still stands to this day. You can still see the table in the middle of the room. There's 300 seats around it where everybody can watch where the dead person is dissected. This room is one of the first classes, as I understand it, that medical students take. And one author puts it this way, that the cadaver that lies in the middle of the room is our first patient. And in Latin, above the room's doorway, before you walk in, there is a phrase in Latin that is translated this, this is a place where the dead are pleased to help the living. The cadaver is there, and through its death, the medical students understand the inner workings of the human body and know how to give life to those who are still alive. There is one difference between that body there and the body of Jesus lying in the tomb, and it is this. Jesus' body, his death, delights to help the living just like you and me this morning. But the difference is this, while that cadaver lays there and it will lie there forever, Jesus' body would not lie there forever. Jesus' body indeed is there to help you. His death delights to help the living when in fact we are not living to begin with. We are all dead in trespasses and sins. We are all deserving of the punishment of hell and destruction. And as much as you'd like to believe that you are living, when in fact the one that's lying there is the one alive, and you that are watching are the ones dead. Jesus' death and his burial is here recorded in Scripture to help you. Because what makes this passage remarkable is this, that a man was crucified and buried, but there were countless other men that were crucified and buried. What makes it different about this burial? What makes this story different is that this buried man would not stay there. There is a tomb in Jerusalem that you can go visit today that is empty. There is nothing there. There is a tomb in Jerusalem that is famous not for the person that is buried there, but because of the person that rose from there. Before we get to the resurrection next week, I want you to think about, church, what the burial of Jesus means to you. Do not merely disregard the death of Jesus. Don't merely acknowledge the death of Jesus, but I want you to do this. I want you to lovingly embrace the death of Jesus because through his burial, Jesus is communicating this one phrase to us. It's not over yet.